What a difference. The Talkbuster Podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Chipman. You may remember me from such podcasts as the Chipman Brothers Tangent and Creating Geeks, a parenting podcast of great responsibility. I'm here to bring you back to the late 90s, early 2000s, a time of amrays and clamshells, a time of late fees and VHS tapes being replaced by DVDs, a time of stale gumballs and overpriced candy. Yes, that's right. I am talking about the time of Blockbuster Video, the Walmart of the video rental industry, the mom-and-pop video store killer, the corporate big-choice video store that everybody loved to hate. Blockbuster is mostly gone now. Kids today will never know the crazy Friday and Saturday nights with lines wrapped around the store to rent the next big movie. No more will regulars, who are in the know, arrive at 10 a.m. on Tuesdays to snatch up the new rentals that week before the weekend rush. Most of all, no longer will young movie geeks like myself have the memories I, and many others like me, made while working there. You see, under all of the corporate evil and bad practices, Blockbuster was a home, a comfort, a place where I made lifelong friends and even met my wife. It is because of these memories that I, and I'm sure many of you, have that the Talkbuster podcast was created, a place for me and others to share our memories of what once was, of the before time, of the long, long ago. I'm looking forward to see where this goes, how it evolves. Join me, won't you? Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Talkbuster podcast. As always, I am your host, Chris Chipman, a.k.a. The Chippa. And before we get into our very special guest, you guys are going to be psyched about this one. I'd like to thank my $15 or more a month patrons. They are Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, Hugh K. Campbell Jr., Alex Peregrine, Kevin CV, Mike the Gatherer, Tyler Freshcorn, Mark Price. Collaborating online, Alex Shaw, Seth Comfort, Seth Decker, Andrew Krauss, Robert V. Aldrich, Aaron Moriarty, Carolyn Thompson, Scott R. Curie, Shore Hudson, Gusted, and the Geeks with Shields. All of you are amazing. Thank you for allowing me to do what I enjoy doing, because even if there was no money in it, I would still do this because I love it. But your money helps remind me that, uh, hey, you guys want this, and it helps me keep my family going because I could uh, be spending more and more and more time doing uh, the day job, and the day job after the 40 salaried hours doesn't pay anymore. So it's always good to have this outlet. Um with that, uh, this show, like a lot of my shows, is brought to you by the Geeks with Shields podcast. You guys know them. They're some of my very good friends. I've been on their show a bunch. They've been on my shows a bunch. The Geeks with Shields are... Um, Every week, Axel and Ulrich, the hosts of the Geeks with Shields, provide a nerdy escape from the darkest timeline, talking everything from comics to long-forgotten movies and TV shows. If the darkest timeline has you down, check out the Geeks with Shields podcast for all your nerdy needs. Now, this guest and guests of this nature would be something that I would normally do on the Shooting the Shit with Chippa podcast, but this guest is tied to something that holds a very, very, very special place in my heart and that place in my heart ties back to my days working at blockbuster in my video rental days and you know i'm going to embarrass myself because i forgot to ask him how to pronounce his last name so i'm going to say is it scott shifo or shivo shafo 
Chaffo. Well, there we go. I usually I usually take care of that before starting. But Scott, you may have heard of his name, but you might remember him more as the Chulies Gum representative from the film Clerks. Yes, I am speaking to someone who was in one of, if not my favorite movie of all time, the collective favorite movie of everyone I worked at Blockbuster with. And I would assume the collective favorite movie of anyone who's ever been in a dead end retail job. Um, Scott, say hi to everybody. Hey, what's going on, folks? Chris, thanks so much for having me on, man. I'm excited. Oh, this is awesome. Um, I'd like to thank, before we get started, I'd like to thank Shamim Dana. Um, Shamim's been on the show, uh, well, he's been on twice, you've only heard him once, but Shamim um, just seems to find people, and he gets really excited and hooks people up, and he's got more signatures than anyone I've ever met in my entire life, and he um, met Scott through the internet and hooked us up, so thank you, Shamim, for making this happen today. Um, Scott, I was wondering, you know, we're recording this right around the time of the film Clerk, playing at South by Southwest, the documentary about Kevin Smith and the making of Clerks. Were you involved in that at all? Actually, no. I, I know Malcolm uh, casually, mostly uh, through the Internet. I'm not close with Malcolm Ingram, but um, I am a, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And Me my too. Friend, yeah, my good friend Brian O'Halloran, I know, I'm pretty sure was it. He was interviewed fairly extensively, and I know he's a big part of it. But um, Malcolm is a is a hell of a guy, and uh, I'm sure that that's going to be quite a documentary. Yeah, I've been getting word in from uh, people in the you know collective get excited for that film that have been part of the South by Southwest experience and have seen it, and they're just like, oh wow, wow. And you'd think you know with with a movie like Clerks and a guy like Kevin, um, he's there's just so much out there about him. And so when people can go, wow, this was surprising and different and new and amazing. And it's like, wow, okay. I, I'm even more excited because you usually get the, the same great story over and over again, you know, and I, I'm, I'm really excited to see it, but um, less about that, more about you. I was just interested in, you know, I thought it was kind of ironic, you know, that we were sure. here. The, uh, it, it's I'll, funny. I'm, I'm actually going to, what were you going to say? Go for it. I'll, say, I'll piggyback off that and just say that, you're right about there's so much out there and there's shooting clerks, which hasn't come out yet, which is the biopic about Kevin and you, but you know, knowing Malcolm and knowing how close Malcolm and Kevin have been over the last few decades, he's the man to do a really intimate, uh, exhaustive thing on Kevin. So that's why this is definitely going to resonate because Kevin and Malcolm have a long history. So that's 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 going to be something. I can't wait to see it. But okay, we're good. No, that's that's fantastic. And and actually I had gotten contacted by uh the cinematographer of that. I think it's Bruce. Do I have that correct? Uh, and he, offhand, I'm not completely sure. I forget his name, but he had said, oh, you're talking to Scott? I'd love to get in on that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, let me contact Scott. And then he went, oh, Friday's not going to work. We'll do it another time. And I was like, man, all right. There's uh, more people. Um, sure. But I uh, know that that's fantastic. So before we get into you know, I, I always like getting people's story, like what got them to the thing that I know them from and then more about you. Right. Because uh, I, I just like to learn. Um, and I think that it's natural and it's cool just to have a conversation with someone, especially, you know, God, 30 years later now at this point. Right. More so. Um, almost 30. Right. For almost clerks. 30. It'll wow. be it'll, theatrically. It'll be 30 in 2004. Wow. 
it's insane. I know. Um, but I was going to say, what you know, going back to you know around the time when that movie came out, or just around the time of like the height of video rental. Since this is a video rental themed podcast, what's your uh, do, you, do you have an experience with that? Were you a were you a movie rental guy, or were you more of the uh, oh no, you know I, uh, I I was into different things. Like what was um? Oh no, man, I was uh, I, I I have been a music and film maniac since the time I was a small child. So uh, I play guitar and keyboard and music is probably my first passion, but film is a very close second acting in film. But I can, you know, and I'm, I've got a lot, you know, I was born in 63. So I remember when video stores first began and, you know, mom and pop stores popped up and it was mind blowing to know you could bring a film home and watch it on your VCR. Uh, that was new and crazy and amazing. So, I mean, I, I was probably in my early to mid-teens, late teens when that started. Yeah. And that was just mind-blowing. And uh, I was a huge fan. I belonged to many video stores before you had the big chains like Blockbuster and Hollywood. So, That's yeah, wild, fan. And you know, yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll let you in on a quick, a quick nugget of what I've been told by Brian. Uh, apparently, Clerks holds the distinction of being one of the most unreturned videos in blockbuster history. That's amazing. I, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. That's wild. Um, Oh man, yeah. yeah it, I think the most stolen too, which which is bad, but it is what it is. No, it is so, what it is, man. You, you know, it's so, it's really funny. Speaking of stolen, have having working worked for a retail company of movies, um, at the height of the importance of physical media, which is still important to me. But you know, the studios are, are care less about it, and you know, the world's more consumed via, you know, the internet and everything else, which is the new way of things, I guess. Sure. But um. It it blew me away, like how how important the companies thought a physical copy of something was, like how nasty they got when they lost something. the The corporate word for theft was shrink. Shrink. I know. I worked in retail. For yeah, that. and shrink. The definition, the law definition, was employee theft. Well, I you know we were as employees looked upon first. But I worked. Uh, I worked. A, I worked in retail quite a while before I began to do uh, uh, film acting and music full time. And I worked in all of the major record chains, so I understand what shrink is and how we had to account for it and what. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was a, just a different world. The physical media was very, very important. It was one of their main revenue streams because if a film did not make a good amount of money on the uh, in the theater then they could always recoup their money from DVD sales and rentals which is now that's all changed it's all streaming now right it, it's it, it's wild right because we bought a movie on on Black Friday on the internet last year and um you know I wasn't even thinking about stuff like that and lo and behold it's one that we already owned 
like with kids and everything you forget. And it's like, oh, cool. We already own this movie. It's a Disney movie. Disney were one of the people that were the most intense about their physical product, right? They made their they made their own special version of DVD that didn't play on all the players. And, um, you you know, because there weren't firmware updates back then like they have on Blu-ray players. So if you had a crappy DVD player, it played crappy movies. And that was basically how it worked. But this movie, we we wrote and said, oh, we're going to return it. And they said, oh, yeah, we'll give you the money back. Don't bother bringing the, the movie back. You're kidding me. And we're like, what do you mean? And they basically said, well, one COVID, that was the big part of it. But they said, our new policy is basically those physical copies are so meaningless that you yeah, just give it to somebody. Like, it, it's not a It's going to cost us more to restock it. And it's like, oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> like, but you've got you've got a refund. Yeah, got a refund. Oh, my gosh. That is really crazy. And just, like, think, it, it reminds me of, like, to think back to that 17-year-old kid working at a blockbuster and worrying that the three movies that got stolen on my watch by a guy with, like, you know, a switchblade in the back of the store right. could mean some sort of write-up for me, you know? Or worse, I could get, you know, uh, like, fired for it, you know, for it happening too many times on my shift. Right. It, I akin it to like the kids running around when I was in high school, afraid they were going to get arrested for having pot on them to driving by a dispensary. Now yeah. it's just going, what? <laughs> you know what I know. I mean? It's a new world. I love, you know, I love technology. I'm a geek. I'm a computer guy, but I, you know, I do miss the days when it was physical media ruled when there were record stores and bookstores and, uh, like a healthy mix of everything, but I, I mean, I have laser discs. I have a pretty big laser. Oh yeah. So like, I love, I've loved movies from day one, but um, yeah, I'm really surprised. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that you got a refund and you didn't have to bring the physical media back. That's crazy. It blows my mind. Cause that was the, they're like, Oh yeah, no, no, we're going to take care of you as the customer. But yeah, don't worry about giving us our product back. And it's wow. like, wow, are you making that little like off of physical media sales? Like this is weird, right? I don't know. But um y- you know, you mentioned record stores and that that brings another twinkle to my eye of something that just happened today. I was walking through the North Shore Mall. I'm I'm from Lynn Mass, right on the North Shore, right on the water. Um, in Massachusetts and Peabody has a huge mall and that mall had this two level Sam Goody, um, which I don't know if Sam Goody was nationwide. It must've been. Yeah, I worked, I was an assistant manager in Sam Goody in the late eighties. There you go. And this one was a two floor Sam Goody on like the edge of the mall. So it had these big windows and you'd see it from the outside. And the second floor was like what they called the studio. And it was just an area where you could, it's where they had the new releases, like the 15 new discs that were out that week. And they had headphones and they had a screen that would come up and show you the video or whatever. And you could listen to it. And I was thinking, and I'm walking there and it's now uh, um, like a nail salon. And I'm looking in there and just picturing the Sam Goody in my head and picturing all the hours we wasted in a good way, just sitting there listening to music. You know, never bought a damn thing. Just went in there and listened to music and tower records and Virgin records. They all had stuff like that. And these all tie in with the, the purpose of me doing this show. It's to reminisce, not just about, you know, working there, but like what it meant to people, you know? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, gosh, I miss it so much. I really do. And 
it did change the landscape of uh, the film and music business, not necessarily for the better or worse. I, I, it's given artists more, it's given artists more resources and a little more control and power over their career, but it's also toppled uh, any kind of, um, you know, the revenue streams now have to come from other places because there really yeah. are no record sales in the way they used to be. Yeah, and that used to be what drove you. What what drove your brand was the record sales. Now it's right, and then you, I mean the band would go on the road, and of course they'd make money on the road from merch. But it was to promote the record. Now it's kind of almost the other way around. The yeah, promoting the live show. Um, but uh, and films, I don't know where we're going, especially since COVID. I don't know if we're going to see even a bigger decrease in people going to theaters since covid but um now everybody has a home theater and you could stream something immediately but there's still nothing like seeing a movie in a packed theater oh yeah i just got my my second covid shot uh thankfully um me, me and my brother who's who's a critic and you know think about this he hasn't been in a movie theater in, in a year in exactly a year as of the day of my birthday day of my birthday was february 26th we both went to the movies that day. The next day we did a panel at PAX East and that and PAX East was when, Oh, they're going to clean everything because there's this COVID thing we just heard about and they're just going to wipe everything down when everybody touches it and be real safe. Surprisingly, no one got sick yeah. from, at PAX East. But then like three days later, my daughter was out of school for two weeks and then had, yeah. didn't go back for a year. Right. And, uh, we, je- we we both got our second shot, so we bought tickets to see Kong versus Godzilla day one. Just because, oh, you know what? Might as well get in for a big spectacle, right? If you're going to go sure. back to the theater, go there with a bang. Sure. Um, instead of, you know, watching a movie shot for IMAX on your two-inch phone. Right. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's I'm glad. My, that's really another mind blower to me is the fact that, like it or not, a couple of generations – are you know now watching movies on a phone i mean i I don't get that but hey you know if they enjoy it they enjoy or an ipad that's great but you know uh, i I have my own little home theater set up i mean it's not a big big deal but i love to watch movies at home but still there's nothing like having that audience feeling and you know whenever if it's a comedy when everybody's laughing or if it's something like you know a thriller everybody gasps or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, the last thing I saw in the theater was uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Obviously, I yeah. went to that. You know, of course, that was wonderful because you know you're sitting in an audience packed with Kevin Smith fans. Oh yeah, and that that is a hell of an audience to see a, a movie with because they they react to the right stuff. I uh, I was super bummed um, when he came to Boston with that. I had written to him and gone, you know. Man, I tried to get tickets in like five minutes. It sold out. And so I wrote I wrote Kevin Smith like a tweet or whatever. And he actually responded and was like, dude, we added a second show later at night, man. I'm really sorry. And I had a newborn kid. And I was like, I just can't do it, but thank you. And so uh, we, you know, I ordered it the minute it was available to buy and got the whole crew. Everyone I worked with in the store that I made this podcast about, right? We all sat down because we saw Jay and Silent Bob strike back. 2001 summer is when I started at Blockbuster. So literally one of my first experiences with this group of people who were all my wedding party. 
and my uh, like I met my wife. She was one of the friends, uh, one of the guys I worked with. My brother worked there. We went and saw Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back opening weekend, and then I don't know if if you recall this because I I had to do some thinking back. It got pulled out of theaters pretty quick because of nine eleven. Um, because wow, Will I, saw, ter- I saw I did see it in the theater too, and I don't recall that. Well, but, Farrell uh, said terrorists like twenty five times in that movie, and the and Miramax decided oh, that was a the bad whole thing. Click commander thing. Yeah, oh. and uh, but we got lucky because we had a local late uh, second run theater that took everything out of the main theaters and would run oh. them. So they took it and had it like uh, had a one a.m. showtime. So we wow. would we would get out of Blockbuster, close the store quick, and go as a group. We saw it like ten times. I, you know, that's one of my, fa- you know, of course I'm super partial to the guy. I love, of course, he's but that's one of my favorites because it is so entertaining and there's just such a wonderful amount of the coolest, um, okay, the word slipping. What am I nuts now? Cameos. There's just yeah. the most, you know, Tracy Morgan is only in there for five minutes, but he <laughs> literally has me in tears. You know, you guys on the job, Jersey local 405. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Strike Back. Uh, and it's great because, you know, at, at 17, like my my blockbuster cultivated my love of film. I always, I mean, I went there because my brother worked there and he, he made me love movies. But, you know, in 1994, I was 10 years old and he rented Clerks at oh. 13 and him and I sat down and watched it. And, you know, it was the quickest talking, most vulgarity, like most adult sounding conversations I had ever heard, you know, at 10 years old. And of course, then we see Chasing Amy, which is, you know, then like light years ahead, even in that. And, you know, Dogma. And then you get to Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And God, you know, that movie is 10 years prior to anyone thinking about cinematic universes. And here's this director making a cinematic universe out of his stories and right. it's wonderful fan service, like collective. Hey, not everybody likes this or gets it, but everybody in this room does. And we're just going right. to my, my buddy actually brought uh, to Comic-Con when he premiered it. My buddy went and brought a blockbuster write up slip and had Kevin Smith sign it and write up our store manager, <laughs> which I thought was really damn funny. That is great. But yeah, yeah, you bring up a good point. Kevin, Kevin's one of the first film. And this is a and this is a testament to Ming Chen. I don't know how familiar you are with the Viewers Universe, but Very. Ming Chen was one of the comic book men. Mm-hmm. You know Ming. Uh, Kevin was one of the first filmmakers to really embrace the internet, the message boards, websites, and cultivate his audience through there. And uh, it it paid off in spades over the years because the audience grew and grew and grew through the message boards and through what that, back then that was social media, uh, the, the websites and the message boards. And um, Kevin really was able to reach out and touch his audience through message boards and the websites before social media. And that, that, that really helped him because, you know, he never really did have a history of his films doing all that well at the box office. A lot of them would uh, open for a couple of weeks and then uh-huh. fade, and then he'd do great on DVD. You know, so uh, 
it's like he was made for these times. Right, and it, it, it was the beginning of that cultivation of people watching movies for the director. And I mean, you had your Spielbergs and your Scorseses, you know, a decade prior, you know, or that that people, but everyday fans, you know, saw, oh, from the production company that made this, yeah, I'll go see that. Or there's an actor that I like. But people latching on to a director right. really was cultivated by that late 90s, early 2000s message board thing where, you know... All of a sudden, it didn't matter if Kevin Smith made, you know, a, a comedic biblical horror epic for his next movie. The fans were showing up, right. you know, and uh, and that that helped him later, you know, when when he had all of his issues with Hollywood and kind of stepping away, you know, people still showed up, you know, sure. people still wanted to. And, and I think I think that's cool. It, 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 it's building up to that prior conversation you and I had of what's going to happen with film is it's something's going to break something's going to topple down a little bit and it's going to go the way I think the music industry is a bit where it's, it's almost like the product leading other types of sales. Like it's going to be the movie lovers are going to love movies, but the movie isn't necessarily going to be the, it's going to be a different product than what it is. I know what you're saying. And what's happening is with streaming, um, the subscription model is really where it's kind of it's kind of where it is right now in a lot of ways because you have Amazon, you have Hulu, you have Netflix, uh, and you have a, a number of them who, if you have the service, you get the movies and they're producing movies like pretty killer movies, you know, Netflix, yeah. Amazon, and uh, you know, Kevin also too spearheading a new thing with the reboot, which is he's going back to almost. Because this was done decades and decades ago, but touring the movie, yeah, you, you tour the movie, you get a Q and A, you meet the director, you get the VIP package, you go backstage, you get your selfie with them, and it's a new, it's another way to create revenue stream for the movie. It's a self-contained con, basically. Right. It's, right. It's, it, and, and, I, and I really like that idea because I, you know, same thing with podcasting, right? Pod, he's one of the people that spearheaded how podcasts absolutely, are now. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and for me, for me to sit down and be talking to you, not that you know you wouldn't want to talk to somebody like me, but for me to sit down and be able to reach out and talk to you in 1992, there wouldn't have even been a format for that to work other than going to a convention and seeing you at the table at, at Clerks or whatever you were promoting, right? So it's it it's almost like. Everyone that wants to condemn all of this extra added technology, it's just that we're not looking at it the right way. And and that all ties back to Blockbuster and the company and the, the video rental industry that I made this whole show about. I just read the book by Alan Payne, who was okay. the most um, – I don't know if, you, if you've heard his name, but he was the most successful Blockbuster franchisee. He, he, he owned franchises for 25 years and saw the rise and fall of every CEO that was ever at the company. And he ran his franchises outside of the way Blockbuster ran it. So everything they did one way, he'd do it different. Oh. And – because Blockbuster allowed that because they didn't see any benefit. The franchises were so small and corporate was growing so much that they were built on the, we'll just grow. And who cares if we're not as good as everybody else, we'll just grow and we'll beat them into submission and never thought about sustainability. And these franchises 
are why that last blockbuster in Bend, Oregon is still there because it was just a franchise that ran itself different and was able to keep the name and stayed open. And uh, he ran the second to last store in the United States in Alaska. And he just wrote a book and I just had him on a couple weeks ago. And the book is fascinating because it talks about how the writing was on the wall in like 1992. Like if he goes, if you look at blockbusters, corporate strategy, yeah, they were going to do great for 10, 20 years, but there was no sustainability because they literally said competition. What's that? We're not going to learn anything from anybody else. We're not going to run metrics. We're just going to be bigger and more than everybody else. Never think about cultivating a base. Never think about changing our inventory to meet what our customers want. Whereas the franchises would go, oh, our customer you know, asked for a movie we don't have in stock. Let's get it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden they'll tell their friends we got a movie for them you know and, and right. they you know, ran it like a mom and pop they ran it like the hole in the wall comic shop video right. mentality that blockbuster definitely had that like in the individual stores you'd get a geek like me working there that would have this type of conversation with a customer for a half an hour right sure, and people sure. that, but the company didn't want that the company wanted you. It was like a McDonald's. How many movies can you get them and how many pieces of candy and how quickly can you get them out the door? And that, that was exactly what they wanted. And um, it was a bummer uh, yeah. because that's not the experience we all remember. No, I, I you know, it, it, it's very, I guess a lot of it for me is, um, well, it's nostalgic and romantic, but record stores and bookstores and videos mm-hmm. say that, they were like the mecca for not only meeting other people like-minded, but uh, it's like where you felt, I don't know, you felt like you was like a second home in a lot of ways. Plus, I mean, I did work in retail for quite a while before I got into film and music full-time um, during college and whatnot. So it was also a day job, but um, you're right. The uh, Most of the... Most of the staff had extensive knowledge. And, you know, if you were working in a certain record store, one guy was the heavy rock guy. One guy was the blues guy. One guy was the classical guy or gal. I don't want to be uh, sexist here. I was men and women all worked in these places. And that's all. Well, it's not gone, but for the most part, you know, now it's all. It's all streaming and subscription models, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The the only experience that's anywhere close to it is these conversations and the not crappy parts of Twitter. Like that's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> which, which unfortunately is only about 5% of Twitter, but uh, still. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so with that, that, that's a perfect segue into, you know, Scott, like what, what got you to where you are today? What, 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 first of all, what gets you to clerks? Like, where, where are you from? Where, where'd you grow up? What were you doing? How did you end up, like, in this movie? Give, give, well, give me the story. I'm, uh, I'm a New Jersey guy and have been from day one. Uh, northern New Jersey, not down south where those guys were. They were closer <laughs> to the shore. I was way up north. So um, it, at a time, late in my, in my late 20s, I had been doing... I had gotten out of, um, I got my bachelor's degree and I was playing in a band and we were really giving it hell and playing clubs and 
trying to court the record labels and we got some major label interest, but nothing was really panning out for us. And I also had a very severe alcohol and drug problem that I'm very open about talking about. Uh, it's Understood. part of my book, you know. So towards the end of my 20s, uh, my my drinking was bringing down the other guys in the band. So I had a long talk with them and they were going to continue on and use the music that I had written with them. But it was best that I got out of the fold and I had juggled music and uh, acting in my earlier 20s. But then I gave music my full time attention. But then when I sort of drank my way out of the band, I thought what I would do was I would get back into the acting because uh, as long as I could hold it together long enough to audition, get a gig, show up at the gig, you're only required to do a handful of days on set, especially when you're a character actor. I figured I could pull that off and my drinking wouldn't affect so many people. Uh, that's kind of nutty, but that was the thinking. Uh, shortly after I got back into giving the acting my full-time attention, I saw the audition for Clerks. There was a notice, and back then there was no internet or, or, or smartphones. Actors were looking in the trade papers uh -huh. for auditions. So I saw the audition, and I drove an hour and a half one way to uh, read for Kevin, which is what we all did on that first edition. We read, well, we didn't read, I'm sorry, we did prepared monologues. And if he liked your prepared monologue, he called you back to read from the script. And I'm very fortunate he liked what I did, called me back. And then at that second audition, I read from the script and they were happy with me and they gave me the role of the Julius Gum guy. And the rest really is independent film history. Uh, of course, at the time, none of us knew that the film would uh, do so well eventually and become a cult success but um i mean i kind of felt early on we were in good hands because kevin kevin was not only uh, i'm older than a lot of the guys in the film so i felt that we were in the hands of a very competent young man who was really intelligent really funny and uh you know i had a great feeling about it of course i had no idea that it would end up in sundance do that well and then come out on miramax would be a real underground cult thing. But um, that's basically the story in a nutshell, how I got involved with it and how I started my career. From that point, after Clerks came out, it gave us all a calling card. So I continued on as a character actor. And with music, I was fortunate to parlay my music interests into doing independent film scores for low-budget films throughout the 90s and the 2000s. Wow. So yeah, that that's so it, it's really cool because you never know, especially with like the, the group that Kevin runs with, if you're going to get a story of, oh, yeah, I grew up with them. And it's cool that like, no, you, you saw the ad, you auditioned and, and it's just, you know, like bottled lightning, right? You're from New Jersey, see a movie being filmed in New Jersey, end up in it. And like you said, the rest is history. But right, uh, that's uh, and let me quickly debunk some myths. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, yes, a majority of the people that worked on that film were friends and family, but myself, actor Brian O'Halloran, who played Dante, actress Marilyn Gigliani, who played Veronica, 
uh, Lisa Spoonauer, rest her soul, yeah. who played Caitlin. We were we didn't know Kevin at all. We were strangers, and we auditioned, and we got the gig. So, uh, as much as it was family and friends that worked on a majority of it, there still were a handful of us in the cast that were just hungry actors looking for a gig. And that's that's cool because, you know, were you as an actor. You know, and and I akin like Kevin's writing style. I've I've listened and talked to a lot of people that have been like involved in, you know, shows and movies that kind of have that like offbeat, you know, indie. We're doing a new thing. You know, it's written in like Kevin's writing style and the way his characters are are very unique, right? You can you can tell he wrote something like just yeah. by by looking at it and my wife is a huge fan of Gilmore girls and I never caught that show when it was first on, but she watches it and, you know, we watch it and it reminds me of the wit and the quick, you know, like he, those shows were a, you know, 45 minute long show with a 120 page script for every episode. And you're like, are you kidding right. me? Like, lots of and, banter, lots of yeah. Banter. And that reminds me of, you know, these works of Kevin Smith, but like, you know, you can see like getting into Jay and silent Bob reboot, you know, people know what they're getting in on, right? You know, the, the Ben Affleck's the anyone else or someone that's never worked with him at least knows, okay, I know what a Kevin Smith joint is going to be. I know what I'm going to get myself into, but you guys are coming and reading for this guy and you read the first time. Had you even seen the script? No, the first audition was prepared monologue. Yeah. Not uncommon. Uh, that the, basically they get to see you at what should be your best because you're coming in with a prepared monologue, something you worked on. Yeah. Uh, and then if they see a spark of one of their characters, then they call you back to read from the actual script. So I didn't read from the script until the second callback. And then he had me read the gum guy. And uh, what's funny is the gum guy has two actual scenes and they're broken up by Jay and Bob. Yep. It's like a page or two. So when he handed me the sides, he said, well, read, read this and come back in in a few minutes and we'll read with you. I just read. I didn't realize there was a second scene. He's like, we did the first one and it went well. He's like, OK, well, let's do the second one. And I said, second one, there's another scene. He's like, yeah, just keep flipping. And sure <laughs> enough, that's the bigger, crazier. Yes, it is. Scene. But, um, you know, I was pretty good. You know, I was really tuned up at the time in terms of an actor. I had my. I had my chops up. I was doing a lot of auditioning at that point. So I was able to keep the energy up, which is what he wanted for that character. And I was blessed because I, you know, I wanted to be a working character actor. But of course, if I got a lead role, that's beautiful. But if you did not get one of the lead roles in that film, the Julie's Gum Guy really is the sweet character actor role. Because yeah. it's written, it's written to stand out specifically. You know, it's written to really be memorable. It's right in the beginning of the movie. It's tons of craziness. You know, for a character actor, you can't miss if you're really on your game. No, exactly. And and I remember saying to a friend the other day, I was like, oh, man, I go, I got a really cool interview coming up because, dude, all your interviews are cool. I go, no, no, this one came out of left field. I was like, it's an interview with someone at Clark's and he's like, oh, my God, did you land Kevin Smith? And I'm like, I am working on that. But no, this is actually more exciting to me, because if you take J. Bob, Dante or Randall out of the equation, 
I'd love to talk to any of them, like, of course. But, you know, what's the character that jumps out? He goes, you got the Chulis gum guy. And I was like, exactly. Oh, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, you know what I mean? Because it's, you know, and and the reason I ask is, you know, it's it's surprising to me that, like you said, and I didn't have a a, a thing to defunct, but it's interesting to find out that, like, Brian and Veronica are, um, you know, not people that just knew Smith walking in because they're so naturally fitting into what I look at is this is the Kevin Smith universe. So these, right. these people must've just known him. You know what I mean? How else do you understand what he's trying to put out? And Dante is such a um, stand in for Kevin. A lot of times. Right. That, you're right. He's, he's Kevin's film proxy, especially when you get to clerks too. And you just watch like the amount of emotion between Dante and Randall in that movie. And you sit there and go, Wow, the, this is just friends getting to kind of look back on everything they've done together. And hearing that puts a different bend on it because it's like, no, this guy is so good at communicating what his emotion is on the page that right. he's he was able to find actors that just get it. A thing that always stood out for me, one is that you in this movie look like Colin Farrell. And what I, what, what I mean by that is it's like I, I always... Uh, attest Colin Farrell's like look that he has in a lot of films into that like carryover from like the late 70s like newspaper or like just tech worker guy that's like you know, the coked out guy in Die Hard you know what I mean yeah like like it's it's that same look of just like this guy is a complete douche but also he's in a position of power so you know he's good at his job and the idea of like a guy who's basically a traveling salesman going into mom and pop convenience stores to convince people not to smoke, to sell gum is such a funny thing in and of itself. And other movies, I think lesser movies would have spent time building up this role instead of having it be a stinger scene that just needs to be as big as it is. Right. But the thing that always strikes me outside of the monologue and everything else is when you roll up your sleeves <laughs> to like, really, and Dante's just standing there shaking his head. Like what, what is like, it's like, I'm just going to make myself at home. All right, let's, let's talk about this. And like, it, it's, you know, what, what were your, because you said you were a trained, you know, working character. Do you remember what monologue you came in with to Kevin for that? Oh, absolutely. I, I used to do um, from the movie diner. Oh yeah, uh, the Dan- one of Daniel Stern's monologues. He played Shrevey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one. Of, it's the monologue where he's talking about that now that he's married, and the hoopla of the wedding is over, like the marriage is fizzling. And I don't know. You know, it's not like I had to get very upset or angry in the monologue, but there was a good deal of energy in it. And somehow he thought to himself that this is my Chulis gum guy. And when I auditioned, I didn't have facial hair. In fact, I never had facial hair back in those days. As an actor, I used to market myself clean shaven. Uh, I went into the rehearsals with facial hair and he said, keep it because you look a little older than the rest of the cast and you should. And it just plays into the intensity and the anger. So we kept the beard, but um, yeah, I, that's all Kevin. I mean, Kevin, now Kevin lets the actors do some 
improvisational takes and to riff on his script. But Kevin, and he said this early on, especially the first handful of movies, you know, he hears the movie before he even really sees it. Yep. Almost like almost like a comedy album. And uh, he's got a very specific way he wants to hear that. And luckily, I was able to nail what he wanted, as was Brian. And I don't think Brian really gets the credit he deserves because on the set, Brian really was Brian O'Halloran as Dante. He was the guy that set the tone for a lot of the other actors. And when I first met Brian, he was very much just a pro. It, it was not like buddy, buddy. It was just, hey, let's run this scene. Let's make it the best it can be. And then we got to move on, which, and he had to work that way because Kevin did not have the luxury of many takes because film was very expensive. And if you didn't nail it in the first, second or third take, he was in trouble. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and this is wild. So, um, you know, you get to this set now. Had you had you done any? I mean, this is your this is your credited. You know, if you go to like IMDb, this is the first film credited. But have you done? Had you done any film roles prior to this? I had actually worked on two indie films before Clerks that were so indie that they never got finished or ever came out. I ah, gotcha. So it was basically. Uh, I don't want to say a pipe dream for the director, but he didn't have the financing and what we were shooting really were just test scenes. So yes, this is absolutely the first film that I worked on that saw through to the end that by, by lots of blessings and magic and thanks to a guy <laughs> named Bob Hawk, mm -hmm. the film actually got to see the light of day. And here we are 30 years later Still talking about it. It's mind blowing to me. It's mind blowing to me too, dude. Just, just like I'm thinking back to 1994 and like the local like um, chronicle like news thing running it. The boom of the Miramax independent films. This film about retail jockeys, clerks, is the talk of the town. And I remember my brother going, "That's the one we have to see." <laughs> like, you know, he was just this budding like film aficionado. That's the one we got to see. Yeah. And uh, it, it's just so wild to think. The more I learn about it, it you know, not to take any way thing away from Kevin because you know. As as I tell anyone, I, I interviewed people from the Salem Horror Fest last year that filmed their movie 90% improv with two iPhones, and I found that out after watching it, and there's no way I ever would have known that watching it. It was just right. such a professionally done movie, and it just worked. And you could say the same thing about Clerks. Yeah, Clerks is a, you know, it's black and white, definitely looking at it through the lens of 2021, you know, it looks like a rough and tumble independent movie, but the dialogue is not some schlub that's just hanging out with their buddies filming a movie. No. You know, this is someone that knows what they're doing. But, like, what do you think, you know, you, um, Dante, and uh, uh, Brian and Veronica there, you know, actors who, you know, are local. I'm assuming all of you were local actors at the time. Well, I'm, we were all Jersey people. But yeah. I'm way up north, just a few, you know, 10, 10, 15 minutes outside of the Bridge of Tunnel into New York City. Those guys are about an hour and a half away from me down in the 
southern New Jersey by the yeah. shore. But yeah. everybody was pretty much Jersey, yes. Yeah, no, no one's flying in from L.A. is, is what exactly. I'm getting no, at. No. So you show up to, to the set, and the set is, oh, we got to film, you know, at midnight when this uh, <laughs> place closes down with the uh, thing down. What, what do you think showing up to that, you know? Well, having talked to Kevin, uh, having getting – I was fortunate, you know, I got to know Kevin a little bit before we shot, and we had some wonderful – phone calls and conversations and we you know i understood the uh, aesthetic of indie film and having to shoot on a low budget um and he actually worked there in the daytime yeah and shut this yeah so you know uh, we thought nothing of it other than it's an opportunity to have a ready-made film set you know it wasn't like anybody looked down their nose at it Good. You know, um, I'm always curious about that, you know? Yeah, no, not at all. You know, you you would rehearse next door at RST Video <laughs> while people were shooting next door at the quick, at the quick stop, you know? Love it was it. really a great time, and it was very exciting. And, you know, like I said, I said earlier, I quickly believed that Kevin was a, a pretty special guy. He was... He he was much, he was wise beyond his years. I felt, you know, like I said, I'm about five or six years older than most of those guys, um, and I just felt like we were in great hands with Kevin. He had such a command of language, and he was really funny and really driven. I just figured we were going to make a really cool cult movie. I never dreamed the likes of Miramax would swoop in and put it out, and we would be, you know we would be the trailer for Pulp Fiction and right. Pulp Fiction would be the trailer for us. You know, that was mind blowing. Yeah. Un unbelievable. Right. And th that was such a bottle of lightning time. I mean, when you, when you want to talk about the, the height of video rental, like taking its boom, right. It's oh, these, yeah. it's it, the, people, you know, a movie that ran for a week in the theater and then becomes a, this is the thing you have to go and rent. Uh, you know, all the Tarantino flicks, all the Kevin Smith flicks. These yeah. are the movies people were waiting for. Um, it's just so wild to talk to someone, you know, who, who was part of that. And the thing that gets me excited about hearing any of you guys and Kevin talk about that world is it, it really does feel like something that if you, if you get the right people in the right room at the time that you could do. And I like stories like that to remind you that, hey, you don't have to have all the money and all the production company and everything behind you. If you if you get the right people together at the right time, something might work out, you know? Yes, I, I agree 100%. You know, Kevin Kevin was very inspired by Rich Linklater and a number of other guys, uh, Hal Hartley, Jim Jamoosh, a lot of other guys on the East Coast. But, you know, Dazed and Confused is, is sort of similar. And, you know... When Kevin saw Dazed and Confused, he began believing, I can do this. I know I can. Because he wanted to be a he wanted to be a writer before he thought about being a filmmaker. He wrote sketch comedy in high school mm -hmm. and he knew that there was some kind of he wanted that very badly. But I Dazed and Confused is the movie he cites as the one that made him believe, hey, I can do this. I'm pretty sure I could do this. And you know, he went to film school for a little while in Canada and met Scott Mosier and Dave Klein, two guys who became very important to the movie. And they came back with him to shoot it. 
and uh, you know, it, it really is a, a real beautiful story. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm partial and I'm part of it, so I look at it with nothing but fondness. But um, uh, to, to to be in Sundance and to make a stink at Sundance, you know, was just it was a such super dream come true. You know, one year I'm working hard with my band and I'm going on auditions and I'm working in retail. And then a couple of years later, uh, you walk into a video store and there's the movie I was in on an end cap with posters all over the place. Isn't it nuts? Yeah, it was wonderful. It was the most amazing uh, dream come true you could think of. That's so wild. Now, you know, obviously I, I could talk clerks all night long, but I, you know, we, we got to clerks. Let's, let's hear more about Scott. Like what, what, where did, where did the, uh, where did that moment take you to? What'd you do after it? Well, I had, uh, as I shared earlier, unfortunately, um, I had a pretty severe alcohol and drug problem mm -hmm. and it was starting to really come to a head right around the time we were shooting Clerks, but it never got in the way of my involvement in Clerks. However, sadly, I had called Kevin a number of times after the movie was uh, finished where I was, I had been drinking and he was sweet to me. He was not judgmental. Uh, you know, he pretty much was saying things like, well, do, do whatever you got to do to keep it together. Because, you know, the movie's doing, the movie's going to come out, you know, in the fall and it's going to be really exciting and you've got to be 100% to capitalize on it. And uh, unfortunately, I missed the actual premiere in New York at the Angelica because I had been drinking so heavily, I ended up in rehab that month. Oh, and I wasn't even in New Jersey. I, I I woke up. I used to binge so badly that I would lose days of my life and come to. I literally came to in Pennsylvania. Oof. So, I mean, I, I joke a little bit about it now. There's nothing funny about alcoholism and drug addiction. No, no. And, and, it, and it's I, I really appreciate you being so open about it because I, I think that's the only way that's the only way we're going to get, you know, anybody else to to understand, you know, right. um, I've, I've been hit pretty hard by it in my life too, from people around. I actually lost my dad to it. So I, I get oh, it. I'm sorry. I know no. alcoholism and drug addiction really is brutal and it really hurts a lot of people along the way, you know, for every alcoholic or drug addict, there's at least four or five people whose lives are really altered. Um, but I don't want to turn it into a bummer. I mean, I did. No, no, I just, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you being open and there's no judgment here. Is, yeah, is what no, I'm... I mean, and it's, it's very, anybody who does know me now on social media or who has gotten to know over the years, I have a book out. That's a book of stories and short, short stories and poems that were all written during the time I had been drinking and drugging heavily. I am now, I haven't had a drink this 4th of July. It'll be 15 years without a drink. Number so, one, congratulations, and and you. number two, sorry, sorry for the joke about bring a beer earlier. I did not no, know no, that. No, 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 no. In fact, I figure I'd. And to me, you want to know something like the beauty of the fact that I'm today free from the compulsion to drink alcohol. 
that kind of thing never rubs me the wrong way. Uh, as long as somebody can enjoy alcohol and it's safe for them, I'm the first one to, you know, say, you know, it, do what you... I'm not one of these guys that's trying to make the world sober. You know what I mean? Oh, of course. Of course. If you have a problem, you got to deal with it. But if you don't have a problem, you can enjoy it uh, properly. Go right ahead. Um, you know, I had I had just a serious problem with uh, illicit drugs. Uh, I haven't touched any of that in the same amount of time. Although I've had a lot of health issues in the last 20 years. Prescription medication comes and goes in my life. Uh -huh. pain medication, anxiety medication. I work with my doctor with that. I don't abuse it. But, um, you know, addiction is just a horrible, horrible thing. I don't wish on anybody. And, you know, I have a master's degree in mental health counseling. Oh, because, wow. Yeah, I, I graduated in 2016. It was a, a passionate area of interest for me that I, I've been in therapy all of my adult life, I wanted to get behind it and become a therapist, whether I used it or not. I knew it would help me in my work as an actor and a musician, and it has. So, you know, I go deep with this stuff. But uh, in the 90s, I was fortunate to work with a lot of interesting people as a result of Clerks. Now, a lot of the films I worked on did not come out in a very big way the way we hoped. Uh -huh. But I worked with a lot of people that were pretty named people in the 90s. And it's all as a result of clerks opening the door for me. Awesome. Yeah, I noticed you, you've got some you've got some award listings here. New York Film and Video Festival for editing and scoring a movie. Um, oh. Wow. It's, t talk about it because I've, I've seen Vulgar. I, re I remember uh, Vulgar. Um, being, you know, the, the note from uh, the IMDb page is either IMDb or Wikipedia, you know, said that <laughs> Vulgar was one of Lionsgate's most controversial releases. I understand why. Um, but I, <laughs> but I, I remember, um, you know, just like getting that without even thinking because, oh, Brian O'Halloran made a movie. We're watching it. And I think I, I love Vulgar. I mean, it's hard to love. Vulgar is a nasty freaking movie, but Vulgar's right. Vulgar's great. It's just not a happy flick at all. Right. No, as an independent film, I have very close friends who are filmmakers who confide in me and say that they feel as an indie, they feel it's a better indie than Clerks. Of course, we're not trying to compare anything here, but it did get a... There's just no way due to the nature... To sell of, that movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no way. I mean, Howard Stern for a week flipped out and talked about it every morning before it came out because he was so incensed by it. But it was the best promotion we could have ever gotten. Um, right. It definitely elicits that kind of response. It is right. a role. As far as uh, performances, Brian gives an extremely bold performance, which I give him so much credit for. It's almost like Harvey Keitel in Bad Lieutenant. It's uh -huh. really raw and bold. Uh, I am very happy with my involvement in it. I got to work with Brian once again. He and I almost go head to head like we did in Clerks. Um, you know, I'm his nemesis in this film too. And it was exciting to play that. And, you know, what character actor doesn't want to go head to head with the police in a, 
in a film, you know, where it's a shootout, literally. So yeah. it was a wonderful opportunity. Again, it it's a very uh, controversial film. So across the board, it didn't get a lot of love. But the people who really get it really dig it as a film, which is great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it is a brutal, visceral, little mean, nasty movie, and it right. and and it and that's a testament to how well made it is, right? <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, Brian Johnson is really a twisted genius. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, and then you know, t- talk about some of those other films or the scores. You know, this is this is really fascinating stuff. Like, what what things jump out at you is like just. Like well, great experience. Uh, I did a film, I did a film not long after Clerks, called uh, it's called Garden State, mm-hmm. aka Zero Stress, which never really got its due, unfortunately. But it was a fairly, uh, it was indie in the sense that it didn't have a big budget. But we had a an amazing cast. We had uh, one of the leads. It's an ensemble movie. One of the leads was Michael DiLorenzo who at the time was a big television star on New York Undercover. And all of my scenes are with Michael. And it was a privilege and an honor to get to work with him at a time when his career was really through the roof. Because back then, you know, it wasn't like it is now. There literally was only network television. And Fox was the newest network at the time in the mid-90s. Yep. And he was on a very, you know, it was a hit television show. Uh, one of the first television shows, too, to have, um, you know, inclusion. You know, you had a you had a Puerto Rican cop and you had a black cop and they were a team. And this is long before uh, inclusion was more of a thing, if you know what I mean. No, exactly. More more before everyone was jumping on it. It was right. Right. You you imagine. Behind the scenes, there was a lot of really heated discussions over that inclusion. It wasn't just an easy thing to do. Right. It was, uh, but it was a very successful show. And he was a big star at the time. And he was the sweetest guy you could have met. And he was really nice to me. And all of our scenes are scenes we play together. So for me, it was exciting because it was the first time I worked opposite somebody who literally you know, was on TV Guide, like the cover of TV Guide. And as we're filming, literally in Jersey City, New Jersey, school buses would pass by and we'd have to stop filming because the kids were going nuts because they're yelling, screaming, hey, there's Detective Torres. You know, because he was (laughs) he was literally that big. And like, who's the guy with Detective Torres? And somebody like, oh, it's the Chulies gum guy. Who the hell's the Chulies gum guy? You know, these kids didn't know. This this was just a really big television star. And it was so exciting for me. And the fact that he was such a sweetheart, because Michael's been in the business since he's a young man. He's in uh, he's in the uh, the bad video. He's a dancer. He was in fame and head of the class. He's Santiago and a few good men like Michael's been around the block. Wow. And getting to work with him was just a joy because the guy was a sweetheart. He had the first cell phone any of us saw. And it, was like, <laughs> it was like this huge, giant, you know, it looked like a walkie-talkie. It was the Zach Morris phone, right, as we yeah. always call it. Yeah. 
but that was exciting. And then uh, move fast forward in the 2000s, I got to work with a lot of wonderful people like Tom Zanka, who uh, did a number of low-budget indies that got a lot of uh, nice festival acclaim where I not only got to be in the film, I also did the score, which opened up a whole new career for me. Uh, and Zan Tom Zanka took a shot on me. Michael P. Rusin, who I did a number of indies with, I did the score, and I was also in the films. We won an award for a comedy we did called Idiots Are Us, which, again, they were small films, but they were really embraced. And I just have been blessed to continue on. And between juggling music and acting, I was able to keep my career floating, even after losing everything to my alcohol and drug addiction by the early 2000s. I was able to become reborn again. And I have a wonderful woman in my life who's oh, a big awesome. part of that too. Uh, her name is Carrie. Uh, Jewel Carey, she has a record out. She's also a singer-songwriter. So, awesome. You know, dude, I I just feel really blessed to have been a part of everything I have been, and I'm still alive and I'm still upright. No, a absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I feel really honored and blessed that, you know, you – your story brings you to talk to me <laughs> tonight because it's yeah, this, it this is really eye-opening and 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 awesome and you know an another thing i've noticed just from photos that you've shared um is that you know the other thing i love about kevin you know when you were talking about alcohol and drug addiction and it affecting you during clerks it always makes me think to kevin's um relationship with jay yeah. you know and as soon as you said how how nice and not judgmental and everything kevin was about it that always brings me back to like how he seemed to be the kind of guy that would just he wanted to help pull people back up from that kind of stuff and not in a not in a publicly shaming like kind of way. It's like, no, this is my friend. I'm going to give him a chance. I'm going to give him a shot, you know, and uh, the stories of how he would fight for people like that on big film sets when, you know, he started getting the bigger Miramax things and they'd kind of look down on, oh, you know, these are your buddies. Well, they can't, you know, hang around with Alan Rickman, you know, and all those right, people. And, right. and then Alan Rickman would be like, no, me and Jay are going to go hang out at this comic shop. I don't know what the big deal is, you know, <laughs> and it, I, I just love how it's, there's no nothing pretentious about any of it you know the the character that kevin plays is definitely riffing on what i think people looking at it from the outside think he must be and all of these stories i ever hear at any time i've ever seen him be intimate and open and then hearing you be so intimate and open it's this it's this collective of people that just lived this rather than um you know, we're just set up to succeed. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you, you really lived. It reminds me of like indie musician stories, this indie film story of just, yeah, yeah, it was hard. And yeah, we had to work our butts off, but you know, you, you just lived it. And it's so damn cool. Yeah, no, it's a, you know, uh, Chris, it's, I keep using the word blessing. I don't know what else to use, but it, there isn't, I can't think of one either. And I'm not even that religious of a guy in yeah. it. It's the only yeah. word. <laughs> you know, what's wonderful is, uh, and I said this in a panel that Kevin was actually a part of the panel. Not long ago, we did a wizard world virtual Q and a, it was Brian O'Halloran and Marilyn Gigliotti and myself. And then halfway through the virtual panel, Kevin J kind of, video bombed in which was the greatest surprise and and then kevin said well 
there's a good chance everybody you see on screen is going to be involved in Clerks 3, which was exciting news. But the point I'm getting at is, and I said this in that panel, you know, Kevin's dreams obviously really came true with Clerks, but all of our collective dreams came true with that same film. It opened up the doors. It gave us all a calling card. And granted, we all had to do, we all had to put the work in to keep it going and to walk through the doors it opened and to continue on. But it was the most amazing blessing you could hope for as an aspiring young actor or musician was to be a part of that film because it got a lot of what we were all after, which was indie cred. Yeah. Uh, and and what was more important then than that, right? This That was the time period of, you know, musicians being called out for selling out and filmmakers being called out for selling out, you know, getting that indie cred, like it just, it skyrocketed you if you right. did it the and, right way. And then the, t the, the tightrope you would walk, which Kevin has walked and he's had his missteps and he's uh -huh. had a long storied career, but how do you keep the indie cred and then you get commercial and then juggle the commercial aspect of it because it is a career and it is a business. And there are a lot, there is a lot of money at stake when you start working on movies that have these astronomical budgets. And he's managed to reinvent himself over and over again throughout the years. So it's again, just been a wonderful blessing. And, uh, I, I, I just feel very fortunate to be a part of it. And, I do have to ask you if there's any questions we didn't get to because I'm I'm starting to lose my No, mind. no, I I was literally about to wrap. That I, okay. I no, it's it's late and I and I you you've been so generous with your time and I'm and I really appreciate it. What what I wanted to say was number 1, thank you. Yeah. Um cuz this was awesome and uh, and I'll thank Shamim again for for hooking us up. Uh, Shamim's a great guy, but I really appreciate you answering the call and and wanting to talk with me and the rescheduling and I wanted to give you the opportunity to remind people or tell people where they can find you and what you've done if you want them to find you and what you've done. Sure. Um scottschiaffo.com is a portal to just about everything you could possibly need or want from my grassroots career. Um, I had a number of things come out during COVID, which was really, again, a blessing. Uh, a movie called Darkness Waits, which is now on Amazon Prime, which is a wonderful indie horror suspense film. Uh, the Deep State by Tom Zanka, which is a YouTube web series. Uh, Wits End, which I did the score, and Brian O'Halloran and I are both in very fun uh, supporting roles in that movie, Wits End. Uh, Jewel Carey, who is my partner in life, whose record is available on Amazon. If you like old school rock and roll, she's almost, if you could imagine Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, if they had a female front person, that's Jewel Carey. Hell yeah. My book has been out a while, but the Audible book came out last year. I was very productive during COVID. But, you know, catch up with me on social media. Uh, I, I'm of uh, my career is such that I do have the flexibility to engage with my wonderful people who are Kevin Heads. Uh, you know, I, I love being part of the Viewers universe. It's allowed me to do other things. Uh, but that is home. Everybody will always 
remember, uh, you know, they all go back to that first thing that brought us all out, which was clerks. Awesome. Well, well, Scott, you know, thank you for being here. Thank you for making it a talkbuster night or day or, you know, whenever it is right now. God, it's two in the morning <laughs> or one in the morning. And anyone listening, thank you for making it a talkbuster night or day or wherever you're listening. Please be kind, rewind, and please check out all that stuff and keep supporting independent film and music. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. You got it.